Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Father, I just ask that you would prepare each of our hearts to hear, to understand, to comprehend. Lord, and where this message may hurt, where there may be a, a sting or an edge of discomfort, pray, Lord Jesus, that you would grant us the grace to have our eyes opened to the things that we lean upon outside of you. Lord Jesus, make a name for yourself in our midst. We love you so much. Amen. Well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, I'm just going to dive right in. How about it? The poison of political correctness. It was about a year ago, about this time, I gave a message called Pink Ribbons and a Bloody Cross. Uh, <laughs> I had someone come up to me after I gave the message, and they're like, boy, how you doing? Uh, well, I feel pretty good. Uh, well, I don't know that I would want to give that message. Uh, I, I think I get sort of used to it up here that I sort of forget what is politically correct and what I'm not supposed to say. Ellerslie gives you a certain latitude to say things that otherwise wouldn't be said in normal society. Uh, I'd like to think of us as normal society, but uh, I think we're a little abnormal uh, around here. Just a hunch I have. But... So I figured it's about a year anniversary uh, from Pink Ribbons and a Bloody Cross, and it's about time to whip another one out. Uh, so it's just, you know, you get that itch. It's the year itch. Uh, don't, I, I think this one, Pink Ribbons and a Bloody Cross was about everything becoming pink and pink washing. You know, the Green Bay Packers even wearing pink on the football field, I th- that pushed it over the top for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, every product in the store, if you want to be hip, if you want to be cool, if you want your product to sell, clothe it in pink. You know, it just gets under my skin a little, uh, especially when the resources are helping fund Planned Parenthood. It starts to boil my blood a little, and especially the fact that Christians are one of the leading supporters of it. So at the second half of that message, uh, I gave a message on hell. That's not going to happen today, but uh, those messages, I, I might have a one or two year anniversary for that one. Uh, but it was a, the type of message that just sort of reminds you what matters. Remember uh, the statement, some of you haven't heard this, but I'll uh, just sort of throw it in there at the beginning. Uh, William Booth said that if he could properly end his discipleship of those that he has trained, the men and women that he has trained, he would finish it by hanging them over hell for 24 hours so that they could hear the screams. If we had the opportunity, and I'm not saying that that sounds very inviting, I'm not saying that any of us would really truly want that experience, But in a sense, we as the church of Jesus Christ need that experience. Because to be honest, the realities of the eternal and the cries and the screams of the lost do not reach our ears. And as a result, we trivialize so much of life. And we end up with causes that are so far off from the center. Where we start clothing things in pink instead of recognizing 
that there is a symbol of blood that was shed 2,000 years ago. And if we want to wear any badge, it is the blood of Jesus Christ, not a pink ribbon. Does that mean I'm against uh, people with breast cancer? Absolutely not. I'm a huge fan of seeing them healed. And by the way, one thing I said a year ago, and this isn't what my message is on. But by the way, a cure has already been found. Introducing the ultimate human. Okay? Uh, now, you'll notice I put a little asterisk next to this. And then follow the asterisk down to the bottom. According to the world's definition of correctitude. The humanitarian, certifiably green, pink ribbon-wearing PETA intern. If you were the humanitarian, certifiably green, pink ribbon-wearing PETA intern, you would be defined by our modern society as the ultimate human. Okay, now, for those of you that don't know what those things mean, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time. I will go into humanitarianism. But certifiably green, that's the classic tree hugger. It's the one that puts the value of the environment above even the value of human beings. In fact, blames human beings and would say, I would rather see human beings cast off this earth and see this earth rescued. You know, it's a very bad appropriation of value. Now, I would say that every Christian, truly, should care about the poor and the needy, should care about clothing the naked, should care about sheltering the vulnerable, should care about adopting the orphan, and that's what humanitarians care about. So there is a similarity. However, our motivation is completely different, as you will soon see. And by the way, I have a clean house. I don't just you know, throw trash on the floor. I don't do anything unnecessary to devalue the environment in which I live. I want to support the environment in which I live, so in that case, I guess you'd call me green. I wouldn't call myself green in the typical sense, but guess what? I'm not interested in hacking down trees just for the fun of it. I'm interested in preserving the environment I'm in. However, God himself is going to burn it up with fire. So if I'm going to put value on something, it's what he is after rescuing on this earth. You guys sensing the political incorrectness in my message so far? Pink ribbon wearing. If someone is suffering from cancer, guess what? I'm their biggest advocate. I want to stand by those that are suffering, those that are weak, those that are diseased. That's what we do as Christians. However, we do that with Jesus Christ and the ribbon of blood. That's what we stand with. Not with pink ribbons sponsoring some billion dollar research campaign. We have the cure in Jesus Christ. We as Christians don't even know it. And as a result, we go after pander after research dollars. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. PETA intern. You know, this is uh, animals are greater, higher value than humans. I love animals, by the way. And I have no interest in just kicking a dog. However, Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, did not come to shed his blood for animals. He came to shed his blood for humans. That's the gospel, and I do not mince words on that. I protect animals, and for instance, I came out of, I was in Southern California, in, a, in one of those uh, health food stores, I forgot which one it was, like Vitamin Cottage, and I came out, and there were two PETA interns waiting for me outside, and they wanted to talk to me about the 50 whale, humpback whales that were suffering off the shores of Japan, and that these uh, Whaler, whalers, I don't know what they call these, uh, Japanese fishermen were out to get them. You know, and to be honest, 
If you give me a little vote, I would vote in favor of the humpback whales. I'm not just for them being decimated and destroyed. However, there's bigger fish to fry on planet Earth. And if I could give those PETA interns something better to be doing with their life, we have 163 million orphans in the world. 50 humpback whales, 163 million orphans. How about this one? There's 150,000 people today that are dying and going to hell. 50 whales, 150,000 people dying and going to hell. We as Christians better get our priorities straight. However, it's not what this message is about. I just had to give a little venting of that. The ultimate human. You see, there is a definition for it. We all sense what it is. We live in the same culture and we know what this world esteems. So if you want to run for political office, you want to sell some product in the store, what are you going to do? You better look like this. If you want to succeed in this world, you better look like this. Every world is different. See, this is political correctness. But political correctness comes from the definition of a society. Society defines what is correct. Okay, it's not God, it's society. Do you see a problem in that, just to start with? Political correctitude. One as society thinks one ought to be. Now, one of the ways we could say this is instead of using society, we could use sect. One as a sect, a subdivision of people, thinks one ought to be. You know that we divide into sects in Christianity too. We have our little subsects, and in those subsects, we say, this is how you ought to be. This is how you ought to dress. This is how you ought to speak. This is how your children ought to behave. We do it all the time. Is it wrong? Is it wrong? For instance, we were talking about the humanitarian. Is it wrong to help those in need? Is it wrong to feed uh, the hungry? Absolutely not. These are things that we're actually commissioned in the Word of God to do. However, if we were going to get down to brass tacks, how do you appease God. How do you find right relationship with God? Our problem today, and it's always been our problem as humans, is we have a tendency to go to political correctitude, social correctitude, religious correctitude, to be our badge, to be our merit, by which we enter in to the throne room of grace. Hey, God wouldn't punish me. I'm a good person. Hmm. You ever heard that statement? It's one of the most common statements this world over. God wouldn't do that to me. Hell is for bad people. Well, who's actually bad then? You know, well, I don't know, Hitler. Hitler's bad. You know, Mussolini, he's bad. You know what? In his little subculture, he was doing good. According to the Nazi regime, Hitler was the ultimate good-doer. That was a funny statement. Do-gooder. Good doer? Uh, It still works. (laughs) One as society thinks one ought to be. Here's uh, political correctness. One sensitive, this is modern political correctness. You'll all recognize it. One sensitive to not denigrate racial minorities, belittle the capabilities of women, morally implicate the homosexual for his sexual preference, threaten the veil of a woman's privacy or challenge her right to choose, and sensitive not to press any overtly Christian notions on those in one's immediate vicinity. We don't do those things. And if you want to survive in this world, you do not do those things. And if you're a pastor and you want to grow a church, you don't do those things. Now, guess what? There's some good things in that list. You know what? Our racial biases in this world overall are a joke. And so what we oftentimes have is we have a mixture of things that are truly good. 
and are dignified to do. We don't want to racially show bias and denigrate those of different nationalities just because they have a different skin color. We don't do that as Christians. And so we look at a list like this, we're like, well, that, that's true. Well, we don't want to belittle the capabilities of women. That's, of course, a very broad stroke one uh, that leads to feminism too. But however, we're not against women in the church. We want to see them fully what God intended them to be. And yet, look at these things on this list. Morally implicate the homosexual for his sexual preference. We all know the worst thing you could ever do in a church service is bring up that issue. Uh, it's just sort of in my list. I'm actually not bringing up the issue. Okay, I'm just reading a list. I'm, I'm faultless in this one. Okay, but guess what? If you're a true Christian, you have to agree with the word of God. And though the homosexual regime, in the Christian version of it, has attempted to re- state what the Word of God plainly states, or to say that we've evolved out of such clear statements in the Word of God, it still says exactly what it says. And just as adultery is still immoral, so is homosexuality. How about for uh, to threaten the veil of a woman's privacy or challenge her right to choose? We have babies dying in wombs all over this country. What is it, 23,000 a week? And we as Christians are hogtied silenced, gagged. We're not allowed to say anything because it sounds like a political issue. It's a moral issue. When the Nazis are dragging off the Jews, are we supposed to say, oh, it's a political issue? I mean, I don't want to get involved in politics. What about that Jew? That's a human. God has put value on that life. He died for that life. What are you willing to do? These are issues that affect us. And when we fall for the concepts of political correctitude, it binds us. It shackles us from being able to properly live as Christians in the age in which we're born. Perfect righteousness now. Okay, so what we're going to begin to define is perfect righteousness. But instead of perfect righteousness as the Bible would talk about it, we want to talk about it first of all the way the culture would look at it. Perfect righteousness now, the humanitarian, certifiably green, pink ribbon-wearing PETA intern. But, this is now. This is the way we think now. We haven't always thought this way. Culture is constantly changing. And when you take your definition of correctitude from culture, instead of from something unchanging like the Bible, you end up all over the map. Okay, so let's look back, you know, a few thousand years. Perfect righteousness then. Now, this is just one snapshot in one country 2,000 years ago. I, Paul, also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's just about to give you a list of correctitude. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Whoa! Ultimate human. This is the ultimate human, Hebrew of Hebrews. But you could say, well, but he's wrong. Well, he will acknowledge that in Philippians uh, 3, 7. Okay, he goes on to acknowledge that. However, what you see is that amongst the Pharisaical branch, the sect of the Hebrews, Paul had it together. This is righteousness, according to Paul. God happens to call it self-righteousness. It's not a righteousness that is approved in heaven. But here on earth, this is good stuff. And just like, what was the, the list I gave you before? 
the humanitarian certifiably green pink ribbon wearing PETA intern. That could sound so impressive. Could you imagine if you could put that on your resume today? Oh, any job open to you. In fact, you could call it discrimination if they don't hire you. All you have to do is put in there that you're a woman, too, and a racial minority, and you've got yourself the job. That's how our culture is working today. You're the perfect, ultimate human. Who needs divine aid? The world has us to save it. Okay, I'm going to give you a crash course on humanitarianism. Now, if I were to ask you how many of you are humanitarians, wouldn't you feel sort of awkward not raising your hand for that? Well, of course I care about other humans. Now, I'm going to challenge the entire framework of humanitarianism. This will get a few of you mad. And those that watch this on video or uh, yeah, film the, later this week, it'll make them mad. Uh, which is, I guess, part of the fun. It's just truth. I'm going to call it a religion. How's that? The religion of humanitarianism. And this is what it says. Who needs God? Man is enough. Okay, let me explore that a little more. Because this isn't just my opinion. Recognizing a humanitarian cause. Here's the checklist. Is there an injustice? Is there a human animal or plant suffering? Is someone or something experiencing vulnerability, difficulty, or the effects of human barbarity? If yes, then. Can the problem be solved through human ingenuity and the practical efforts of human beings laboring together, sacrificing money, and volunteering service? If yes, then. Would the goodness of humankind be praised and exalted through such a work? Would the confidence in the kindness, compassion, sweetness, and loveliness of humankind be strengthened if success was gained? You know, we, we don't have much confidence in humanity anymore. But this, if we were to rise up and do something, people would say there's hope for the human race again. Look at what they're doing over there. That's good. Good-hearted people at work. If yes, then this is a humanitarian cause. The diabolical problem with humanitarianism. You see, it doesn't sound that diabolical. It doesn't sound that bad. I mean, you're rescuing plants, animals, humans, people in need. Isn't that what we're about? As Christians, it is. I wouldn't say that we're after rescuing plants as a normal uh, attitude. However, we're not just for unnecessary destruction of things. We're preservers. We, we maintain habitat, if you will, in a very good way. But what is the problem with this? The diabolical problem with humanitarianism. Humanitarianism is an affront to Jesus Christ. It seeks to demonstrate a salvation, a rescue, a form of deliverance that can be worked without the cross. It seeks to justify and prove human righteousness without the need of Christ's blood. It seeks to purify and wash the stained human conscience through acts of human goodness. It declares that the world can be saved and that peace can be gained through a means other than the life of God imparted. Humanitarianism is a declaration that man is sufficient outside of Jesus Christ and that the only savior we need is human goodness and compassion. Think about this. Why do people feel that God could never sentence them to hell? Hey, I... I do good things. I'm a humanitarian. How in the world could God sentence me to hell? They're leaning on their own righteousness. When they come before the bar of judgment, in the end, what is their plea? Look what I did. I did all these good things. 
God, I'm a humanitarian, certifiably green, trying to remember my pink ribbon wearing, Pete intern. Hey, look at all that I've done. I rescued rats from being tortured in scientific study. I'm not against sparing rats, okay? They're somewhat cute if you look at them the right way. Okay, just to help you pronounce this big word, humanitarianism. Look at, I have the pronunciation guide for it. I thought that was so hilarious. It's like double the length of the word already. Humanitarianism. Okay, now look at the first definition, and I, I emboldened and made big the second definition just so you wouldn't miss it. Now, the Rosens, after last year's thing, they actually found this on dictionary.com, so I had to use it. First definition is the doctrine that humanity's obligations are concerned wholly with the welfare of the human race. Look at this second definition. The doctrine that humankind may become perfect without divine aid. So, who's a humanitarian in here? Uh Uh-huh. You see, we aren't humanitarians. We're Christians. There's a difference between the two. We know that the only way that we can find salvation, there is only one means to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's no human goodness. There's no banding together of united humanity. The kings of the earth can take their stand against the anointed one. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. There is only one way to the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. Call me narrow-minded, call me closed-minded. That's truth. And God himself will back it up in the end. That's truth. So, how does that affect us? Now, some of you might be a little offended by now, so you might be closing Eric off. However, what I'm about to give you is the true solution to life. But before we go through that, we have to expose a few more humanitarian, certifiably green, uh, pink ribbon-wearing, PETA intern mentalities that we have. Because most of us, in the conservative side of Christianity... We're like, yeah, I'm Republican. I don't, I'm not that. I'm not PETA. <laughs> However, did you know that we can lean just as much on our Republicanism as we can on humanitarianism? What's your badge before the Father? When you come before the throne, what do you say in your defense? That answer defines the state of your soul. Self-righteousness. Who needs divine aid? I think I can pull this off by myself. Hey, God, I got the the tools here. I, I think I'm able to pull this off. And through your good works, through your attempts at maintaining a political correctitude, a religious correctitude, or a social correctitude within your sect, you have the merits before the throne of God. Is that true? So Paulette, the social activist, I know you've seen this uh, list before, but this is Paulette. I'm going to give some names to people. The humanitarian, certifiably green, pink ribbon-wearing PETA intern. Go, Paulette! That's self-righteousness. If she stands before the throne, I don't care. If someone is a humanitarian, they're actually helping people. They're clothing the the naked. They are uh, feeding the hungry. Yet, on the judgment day, that isn't their appeal. They actually have the right appeal. That's fine. I'm not against, you know, protecting the environment and, uh, you know, cheering on people with breast cancer and comforting them in their time of need. I'm all for it. But that's a Christian. It's not a humanitarian. And it's not your means by which you are justified and seen correct in the eyes of God. 
Paul. So we had Paulette, now we have Paul. The Hebrew of Hebrews. Who is this guy? Well, what's his badge? What's his merits? Well, hey, he's the eighth-day circumcised, pure-blooded, certifiably, certifiably Hebrew, church-persecuting, legally spotless, pharisaical Benjamite. That's a list. Now, it might not be a perfectly impressive list to you because you didn't come from his society. You didn't come from his sect. And so to you, you're like, are you serious, Paul? That's what you're going to have as your badge on the judgment day? You're going to actually think that's going to work with God? That you're going to say, oh, I'm in the eighth day circumcised, pure-blooded, certifiably Hebrew church, persecuting, legally spotless, pharisaical Benjamin. And God's going to say, whoa, wow, come on in. Is that your answer? What is your answer? Okay, I'm going to poke around a little here. What is your righteousness resume? Now, I'm going to go through some righteousness resumes. And I actually had more than this and uh, decided to slim this down. But what I want is for every single one of us to evaluate if we have a righteousness resume of our own. Are you leaning on anything that you do? Or are you leaning fully on the work of the cross? Because you have to realize in the conservative side of things, we oftentimes have a little hidden righteousness resume. We keep it in our pocket. Okay? So we have the doctrinally correct answer. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is my salvation. Yeah, Jesus is my righteousness. And what are you clothed in? I'm clothed in the robe of righteousness. Praise God. We sing our songs about it, but guess what? In our pocket, we have some confidence. If that whole Jesus robe thing doesn't work, I got my little list. My list of political correctitude, social correctitude, in our case, Christian correctitude. Okay, so let's look at a little Christian correctitude. Most of us probably are not totally politically correct. You probably wouldn't be hanging out in this environment if you were. Uh, and so what is your righteousness resume? Because we do the same thing on the opposite end of the spectrum. The Christian conservative correctitude. Are you the card-carrying Republican? The Limbaugh-loving, pro-life voting, Rick Perry-loving, caucus-following, never-miss-the-vote Reaganite? Could you imagine showing up at the throne room of grace with that? Hey, I listen to Rush Limbaugh every day. I'm conservative. I only vote pro-life. I'm, I'm a, Rick, a Rick Perry supporter, uh, by the way, God. Oh, come on in. Now, what you're going to find is that the things on these lists aren't necessarily bad. I'm not trying to say that anything on any of these lists is bad. It's not bad to rescue the weak. It's not bad to save an animal from being kicked by some idiot. Okay, I'm not against it. However, I want us to realize that our righteousness does not flow from anything but Jesus Christ. And we must get this list out of our pocket and burn it. You know what Paul said about his list? He considers it dung. Eh, pretty strong word. Well, get that dung out of your pocket. Are you the plainly accoutred minimalist? The pacifistic, head-covered, long-dressed, simple-fabric, horse-drawn, carriage-riding Anabaptist? Now, I want you to realize, in these things, each one of these things, I'm not saying that anything's bad. But you need to realize, if you lean on this, this is a subculture. You guys know it. It's a sect within Christianity that can find its righteousness outside of Jesus Christ and in external accoutrement. Does that mean it's bad for a woman to cover her head? No. Does that mean it's bad to ride around in a horse-drawn carriage? No. There isn't anything in the Bible that says stay out of horse-drawn carriages. 
However, if you have to be in a horse-drawn carriage to make it into heaven, something's wrong with your spiritual life. Follow me? Are you the eye-dotting, T-crossing moralist? The alcohol-abstaining, cigarette-resisting, non-swearing, purity-keeping, below-the-kneecap-dress-wearing, always-punctual, never-texting, Ellerslie phenom. Now, I know those other two things can't get you into heaven, but that will. Okay, we all know the answer to this. If we lean on anything outside of Jesus Christ, does that mean we should be beer guzzling, cigarette smoking, swearing, you know, uh, sexually perverted, uh, you know, short miniskirted? Of course not. The opposite isn't true. But where do we find our righteousness? Do we have something hidden in our pocket? I went to Ellerslie. I didn't text for nine weeks. And God's like, that's impossible. You actually did that? Are you the doctrinally sound theologian? Are you the biblically groomed, eschatologically astute, soterologically refined, hermeneutically polished doctrinarian? Some of you are like, I have no idea what that was. <laughs> That's probably not you. <laughs> it's in your pocket. I know the Bible backwards and forwards. I have more verses memorized than anyone in this church. They don't understand their eschatology. I do. They don't even have a hermeneutic. I know a hermeneutic. And you're leaning on these things instead of on Jesus Christ. It is a filthy rag. It is dung in your pocket. Get it out. That isn't where your confidence should lie. The Ten Commandments. You see, one of the reasons why we have such a confidence in our own righteousness is because we don't truly understand the righteousness of God. We think that our mimicking down here on earth in such a paltry, ridiculous way somehow is matching the grand righteousness of God. We do. We don't admit it because most of us at least have enough doctrinal sense to not say what we actually feel. I'm doing pretty good. You know, look at all these other people. They don't even take Christianity seriously. I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I dotted this I, crossed this T. I rode the horse-drawn carriage yesterday. Is this what you lean on? Do you lean on what day you keep the Sabbath and when you get to heaven, that is what you make an appeal to God on? Hey, but I was a Sabbatarian. I kept it on Saturday. Instead, that's the actual way it's supposed to be. God, will you recognize that? That isn't your merit. Your merit is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Ten Commandments. Now, this is a different version of going through the Ten Commandments that you would be used to. This comes out of a message at Ellerslie called Consecration. And it's basically talking about intimacy with God. The Ten Commandments were placed in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of Covenant. It's the most intimate place. And Song of Solomon is a description of the Holy of Holies. It's plated with gold. It smells of frankincense and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's the place of the king. Okay, These, this is the definition of the king. And Song of Solomon is the holy of holies. The Jewish rabbis knew that. We don't. 
We oftentimes look at it through a carnal mind instead of a spiritual one, but it's describing intimacy with God Almighty. And guess what's in that intimate place? In that Ark of Covenant, the Ten Commandments is lying there. Now, I know most of us are like, the law, we're not under that. However, the Ten Commandments, it's not a law that we are under, that we have to fulfill in perfect righteousness in our own strength to somehow make it to heaven. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the perfect righteousness of God. He lived it perfectly. And what are we supposed to be clothed in? Him. We're supposed to be clothed in His work. He did it. He accomplished it. And we must be clothed and found in Him. So one of the reasons why we aren't clothed in Him, even though we say we are, we're clothed in our own good works. We're walking around in our own good works. Do you see uh, my nice color purple? Sort of like a, a velvety purple. Good work here. And people are like, oh, that's a nice, nice jacket you have on there. Yeah, homemade. Self-made. Nice, isn't it? We live this way. Whether you're on the humanitarian, certifiably green, this is really hard to remember, pink ribbon wearing, PETA intern side, or you're on the other side, where you're dotting every T and crossing every... Dotting every T. <laughs> dotting every I, crossing every T in your moralistic framework to gain approval from heaven. Now, you all know that I believe in set-apartness. When Jesus Christ overtakes a life, he changes you, he purifies you, he cleanses you, and he makes you look different than this world. Okay, I'm not canceling that out. Any more than I'm canceling that we should go after the orphan, the widow, the lost, the lonely, the dying, the refugee, the trafficked. Of course we're Christians! But that's the outflow of coming to Christ. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the solution to our life. It's what clothes us. And then it's what fills us. And now out of this clothed life, we live and we do things that are good and correct. But that isn't the reason we do them, is to somehow gain merit in heaven. We do it because we love. The Ten Commandments. They remind us to remove our sandals and bend our knee, for we are standing upon holy ground. They prove our flesh and cause us to freshly yield to the possession of our precious Messiah. They bring us always to our Savior, reminding us of both His righteousness and His rescuing grace. They are the roots of the truest love and affections. For those that are forgiven much, love much. If you don't recognize that you have need for a Savior... And you have your little list of righteousness. It's like, everyone else has need of Jesus, but I have my list. I mean, look at what I've accomplished. And so you go out preaching the gospel to people. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. And guess what? The whole while, you need Jesus. Now, I've used this illustration before, but imagine that it would cost $3 trillion to enter into the throne room of grace. In other words, the cost of righteousness produced in your life, $3 trillion worth of it. And imagine you have a penny of righteousness. It's real. It's a penny. Uh, can you afford it? Hmm. No. So the secret to entry is the fact that Jesus paid that price with his own blood. And he says, here's my cloak of righteousness. Clothe yourself in it. And by merits of that righteousness, which is a foreign righteousness, it's not ours. It's from him. We are clothed in it. We have access into the $3 trillion holy of holies. $3 trillion is probably way too small of a number. But here's the point. If we don't put a numerical value, it's sometimes hard to understand these things, even though God is, doesn't speak it this way. But imagine that you put on this cloak, and you're like, I'm saved by the work of Christ. 
And then you begin to work some real righteousness in your life. You begin to change. You begin to do things that are correct in heaven, that are appropriate. You are now speaking different, thinking different, looking at things different. Your heart is beginning to feel what it's supposed to feel. You're coming into alignment with the kingdom pattern. Real righteousness is taking place within you. You are as you ought to be. You have $100 of righteousness. Is it enough to take off that cloak? Should you say, I got $100 underneath this cloak. Stick it in your pocket. Take off the robe. Hang it on the coat rack. And then approach heaven. With your 100 piddly dollars of righteousness? Say you spend five years saving up your righteousness. You get to $10,000 of real world righteousness. Oh, it's real. It's actually there. It's substance that has come out of trusting Jesus and walking a narrow way. Is it sufficient to take off that robe and enter into the throne room of grace on your own? 50 years of real world righteousness, dying to self and giving your all for Jesus Christ. Maybe you have 5 million saved up in that pocket. It's like I got something. If you're leaning on what's in that pocket and not on Jesus Christ, it's the cloak that gets you in. There is never a point in your Christian life where you should remove it. You lean on that. That's your confidence. If anyone ever asks you, by what merit you will enter in? By what merit can you approach the throne room of grace? His merit, his shed blood, his work. My Christ has died and I am in him. I am found in him. That is your merit. Jesus can stand before the judgment day. You can't. And so where do you want to be? In him. In him. The Ten Lamentations of Salima, meditation on Exodus 20. That's where the Ten Commandments are. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read through the Ten Commandments. But in it, there's a, it's like a meditation. There's a character that I'm going to introduce you to called Salima. Salima is the bride in the Song of Solomon. Okay? She's known as, oftentimes we know her as the Shulamite woman. The word Shulamite is used twice in that uh, scripture. And as Charles Spurgeon says, Shulamite is an unhappy translation. He said it would be more appropriate since it's the feminine form of Solomon. That's actually what the word is. It's the feminine form of Solomon. It should read, he's Solimo and she is Solima. She actually takes on his name. Isn't that extraordinary to just think of what we are doing as the bride of Christ? We are taking on the name of our king. But we're in the feminine form, which means the dependent form. So, a meditation on Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Ten Lamentations of Salima. So Salima is going to speak. So you'll see it's sort of like a script, where Salima will speak, and then God will give his commandment. And then Salima will respond. And what I want you to do is, is attempt to identify with Salima in this. Because in this, you're not God, you're Salima. You're the bride. And I know for us men, that's a little awkward. It's like, bride... I'm a man. Uh, However, we are the bride, which means we're the dependent ones. We find our salvation only through Jesus Christ. That's where we find it. So we lean on him as a bride would upon her groom. Salima, as a thunderous voice from heaven in the thick smokes emitting from thy flaming person, you cry for me above the stormy din. The holy king, I am holy, dear one. I am a consuming fire of righteous perfection, and anything unlike me, anything that bears even the slightest traces of the flesh, will turn to ash in my presence. If I but hear its rustlings in thy being, you cannot partake of me. 
If I but smell the lingering aroma of worldliness on thy garments, you can have no part in me. If there be even the subtle stain of sin's imperfection upon thy hands, then you will die in my presence. I am holy, and I will always be holy. For a thousand forevers, I will still be holy. Because I love thee, I have made a way for thee. It is a way into my holy presence. Through the thunderings and lightnings of my righteousness, I have invited thee. Through the waters of baptism, the cleansing of my blood, and the veil of my flesh, into my most holy dwelling. For only clean hands and a pure heart will secure you in my presence. But first, dear one, it is necessary that I acquaint you with this fiery chamber of my love. To enter here, thou must be clean. Thou must be purged of all sin. The flesh about thy heart must be removed as a covenant symbol of our marriage. Thou must leave thy people. Thou must leave thy comforts of home. Leave thy every possession behind. And even thine own name must be abandoned if thou art to partake of my life. To enter this fiery chamber, thou must allow me to possess thy life and burn away all that which separates you from me. Thou must allow me to refine you like the golds of Ophir, that you may enter in with me and be my spotless bride. To eat of my flesh and drink of my blood in such a holy communion is the most sacred of all sacred activities in all this creation of mine. For me to be in thee and for thee to be in me, this is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but only now revealed to those of my most sacred fellowship. To be my own, purchased of my blood and bearing my very name, this is the most supreme and happy delight. But remember, the fiery chamber of my love can bear nothing that is unlike me. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You must allow me to live within thy body and to possess thee in every way in order to fulfill the righteous requirements of my holy law in and through you. I love you, dear one, and that is why I must prove you with my fire. You must be perfect and holy as I am. Listen as I define myself to thee and acquaint thee with the standards of excellence that thou must display. Salima. O Lord Almighty, thou art all that is holy, righteous, and good. Prove to me my need, and may thy holy law be a schoolmaster unto my soul, which leads me, even with greater love, unto thee is my salvation. Place a coal from thine altar upon my lips, and let me feel the weight of sin, that I may never be ungrateful for thy perfect sacrifice. And here's what the holy king starts with. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Salima says, I am unclean, O my king. My body is thy possession. You have purchased me with thy blood. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, but I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Salimo, that upon my cheeks I bear a most grievous stain. The lips of other lovers have partaken of this body. Their unworthy hands have touched this, thy holy palace. I have given myself to the allurements of this world and allowed them to hold my imagination and draw me into, away into unholy fantasies. I have allowed outside desires to supplant thy regal position in my heart. Desires for applause, respect, desires to be found beautiful in the eyes of this vain world. Desires for marriage, desires for security outside of you. Desire for wealth and riches, desires for ple sexual pleasures and fleshly feasts. Dear King, I have lifted so many things above thy person. I have allowed false gods to sit upon my seat of affection. I have allowed even things you entrusted me for my good to gain inordinate sway over my soul. I have trampled thy most holy chamber with this prostitution. I have entered thy holy place with unclean hands. I have partaken of thy body and imbibed thy blood with the scent of sin upon my garments and an uncircumcised heart. Most precious king, I am without answer to thy holy standard. For though I have known that this garden's fruits were the king of kings alone, I have invited the common villagers to enter the enclosed garden of my being and pollute thy sacred plantings. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, as we go through these, one of the things you're going to know, notice is that when you read through the Ten Commandments, you oftentimes feel pretty good. It's like, you know, I don't really have other gods. I don't bow down to a Buddha. I, you know, I'm not really making some graven engine, some bronze statue of God. You know, I, I'm, I'm not totally bad with my parents, you know, this whole dishonoring thing. I don't really, uh, you know, violate the Sabbath in that way. You know, I don't really steal and kill. That's why we need this. Remember Jesus in the New Testament, he says, You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if a man has lusted after a woman in his heart, he has committed adultery. One lust, hell, as the response. One! You are not like your God. You do not bear his righteousness. One stain is enough. That's quite something. Thou shalt not make unto thee graven any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Salima's response, I am unclean, O my king. My body is thy possession. You have purchased me with thy blood. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price, but I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solimo, that upon my knees I bear a most grievous stain. I have most recently kneeled in the dusty wake of false gods and have given voice to the commands of other spiritual powers. Upon me is the awful stain of disloyalty, for I have listened to the counsel of my flesh and given ear to the wisdoms of this vain world. I have solicited the aid of worldly gods to better my life, to help make me more attractive to this world, to gain me riches and to gain applause. I have knelt at the altar of worldly gossip and have allowed it to taint my mind. I have knelt at the altar of the current voices of chic and vogue and have allowed it to define my actions. I have even knelt at the altar of fleshly pleasure and have secretly partaken of its serpentine fruits. I have bowed down and have served them. And Solimo, I have done the most grievous thing. I have built a golden calf and called it by thy name. I sought to make thee more appealing to my flesh, so I forsook thy holiness and erected a god within my soul of only the softer elements of thy nature, leaving out thy fire, thy holiness, and thy absolute mastery over my soul. I have tried to make a god in the fashion of man's wisdom and have desecrated thy name. Thou art a jealous god, and I stand as one guilty in thy holy, penetrating, fiery presence. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Salima says, I am unclean, O my king. You have placed thy holy, most majestic, most perfect name upon my brow as a crown, as a wedding band of love. But I have forsaken thy holy name. I lament, precious Solimo, that I have not borne thy name with all holiness and perfection. I have taken it vainly upon myself and called myself thine. I have declared to the villagers about that thy banner over me is love, that I am thy precious beloved. But I have not carried the holy ark of this covenant as thou prescribed. I have profaned thy most holy place. I have been careless with this treasure and have dropped it upon the dunghill. I have carried it into places that shamed it and have borne it with undignified manner even amongst the other virgins of thy house. I have not proven the holiness of thy name by my life. I have deluded thy person and tried to bring thee back to my homeland, Egypt. But thy name is holy and can have no part with the flesh. I am most shamed by my irreverence and my unwitting betrayal of thy person. I have approached the most holy place without the dread of thee and thy glory in my step. Oh, how guilty I am before thy throne of judgment. I am unclean, O my king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. 
The holy king says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So Lima says this in response. I am unclean, O my king. You have purchased with thy blood my life. You have suffered the most tragic and horrific death in order to bring about a new creation, a new work, and a new rest. I have allowed self to tend my garden, to repair the walls, to try and grow the perfect fruits inside. I have worked with the fragrance of flesh upon my garments, on thy most holy grounds, in thy most holy temple. I have allowed flesh to remain and to govern my priestly service before thy throne. Self has soiled thy temple. I am most grieved, for self has done work that is holy, and which is meant only to be done by thee. My garden must be tended by thy loving hand, not my own. My walls must be built, maintained, and repaired by thy rugged carpenter's expertise. And if there is to be fruit born within my life, it must be grown by thy love, abiding sweetly and unabated within my heart. I am most shamed that I have allowed self, a most profane substitute for thy grace, to sit upon thy throne. Oh, how guilty I am before thy throne of judgment. I have not entered into thy rest, and have allowed thee to be my life, my Lord, and my love. I am unclean, O King, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. Salima answers, I am unclean, O my king, for the many moments of dishonor and even my earthly parentage strike me dumb with guilt before thy fiery arm of justice. But I have not just dishonored my earthly parentage, I have dishonored the one who gave me new birth into the kingdom of Jehovah. I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solimo, that as the one who gave me life, I have not submitted to thy commands and have fallen far short of the word honor. I have raised my opinion above thine and ignored thy voice on the matter. I have explained away your scripture clarity in exchange for an easier, more fleshly satisfying answer. And dear Lord, I have done a grievous thing. I have even brought other villagers along with me down this dishonoring path. I have influenced others to follow a wider road and to ignore thy narrow way. I have encouraged others to shape a golden calf out of your name and have not stood up amongst the congregation and cried shame. I have dishonored my Father in heaven, the one who gave me new life. Oh, how guilty I am before thy throne of judgment. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, thou shalt not kill. Salima answers, I am unclean, O my king. Thou art the author of life, and I have killed Precious Solimo, I have forsaken thy holy way, and I lament that in proclaiming to be thy bride, I have, in fact, destroyed the life that you suffered so greatly to bring to thy people. I have snuffed out thy life with harsh words spoken. I have snuffed out thy life with fleshly gossip entertained and promoted. I have snuffed out thy life with bitterness and resentment stowed like a castaway in my hold. I have snuffed out thy life by ignoring thee in thy presence and choosing to carouse with my flesh and stop my ears to thy plaintive cries for fellowship. By not yielding to thy presence, I have snuffed out thy life within my garden, stopped the gentle rains from falling, and clouded the sun of righteousness from shining down. By not yielding to thy presence, I have allowed the flesh to speak for my life rather than thy love, and have hurt the villagers about and snuffed out thy life from view. I have killed that which was born, by, uh, born of thy grace. I have quenched that which was of thy spirit. I have rejected that which was meant as sunshine to my soul and to others, and have instead chosen darkness to shroud my soul and to hinder the growth of others. Oh, how guilty I am before thy throne of judgment. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Salima answers, 
I am unclean, O my king. My heart, soul, mind, and strength are consecrated unto thee. But I have used these sacred parts of my being rather as instruments of the most grievous immoralities. I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solomon, that I have used thy holy temple for the most despicable adulteries. I am ashamed to think of how I have used my heart. I have allowed it to flit about and share its affections without guard. I have taken the holy perfumes of thy most sacred sanctuary, and I have distributed them among certain villagers whom I desired to attract. I have taken the holy and set it in the grotesque hands of the unholy. I have allowed the castle of my mind to stand unguarded. I have allowed the flesh to traffic its sensual trade in and through my mind. I have not stopped it from dragging the profane, the fleshly pleasing, and even that which would blaspheme thee into thine inner courts. I have allowed other lovers to stroll about thy holy chambers, play upon my harp strings, and pluck figs and berries from my most intimate vines. I have shared thy precious pearls with uncovenanted swine. I have committed the most obscene adulteries within my temple, and am struck dumb before thy blazing throne of judgment. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The king says, Thou shalt not steal. I am unclean, O my king. I have robbed thee of thy glory. I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solimo, though I am thy glory bearer, I have chosen my human glory above thine own. I have robbed of the most high king. I have taken from his treasury the gold and silver bullion of his kingdom and have used these for personal gain. I have used thy name to enter before trusting villagers and have left them thinking of me rather than thee. I have thrown a fog upon thy person and have placed the limelight upon myself. I have taken what was thine and have poured it into the enemy's war chest. I have desecrated the most holy thing. I have taken thy Ark of Covenant and placed it at the foot of Dakin for the glory of self in a temple room of my own making. Just as Lucifer stole the glory, so have I. I have committed a most heinous crime. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Salima says, I am unclean, O my king. My life has borne a false witness of thee. I have claimed thee as my life and yet have delivered a wholly different message with my living. I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solimo, that my lips are unclean and laden with falsehood. I speak of love, yet bear the witness of selfishness. I speak of grace, and yet bear the witness of self-effort. I speak of you, dear king, and yet bear witness only of self upon my throne. I have spoken lies. I have lived lies, and I have promoted lies. I have claimed to be clean when, in fact, I was drowning in filth. I have claimed to be without spot before the villagers when, in fact, I was soiled with the most grievous stains of sin. I have lied to thee, to myself and to my neighbor. I am false, O king, false through and through. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. The holy king says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Salima says, I am unclean, O my king. I have looked elsewhere for my satisfaction when in thee is the fullness of life. I have craved that which the world possesses and have despised the gift that thou hast placed before me in thyself. I have forsaken thy holy way. I lament, precious Solimo, that I have spurned thy satisfying graces that have instead filled myself with fruits of another kingdom. In thee is my blessing, but I have wanted elsewhere, lusting for the things of the flesh. I have longed for the world's pleasure, their sexual feasts, and their sensual revelry. I have looked upon the world's dancing, drinking, and debauchery and wished to partake. I have coveted my neighbor's pleasures and in so doing have soiled my soul with the blemish of ingratitude. I have set the fires of my affections on fleshly things and have taken the oils of the holy chamber and sprinkled them upon the floors of pagan temples. I have sought after a counterfeit life and pleasure and have forsaken the blessing and pleasure of my king. 
I have allowed the allure of the world to blind me from the majesty of heavenly glory. O Salimo, my lover, my most perfect blessing, I have wounded thee. I have broken thy heart. I have nailed thee upon a tree and have chosen a murderous Barabbas instead as my reward. I am unclean, O king, and wholly undeserving of thy grace. And all the people saw the thunderings and lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. We stand blemished, full of faults, and in need of a Messiah. How harrowing a notion to think of such a righteousness without such a Savior. What would our plea be? The Hebrews, it was the blood of bulls, goats, rams, and lambs. That was the only way, but all it could do was cover. All it could do was atone. It couldn't purge out the problem. The core rebellion in our being that seeks self Self-aggrandizement, self-applause, self-comfort, self-pleasure. And it was only the blood of bulls, goats, rams, lambs that could cover it. That could atone. But we still stood blemished. Vulnerable to the next moment being a failing moment. We have such great sin. But get this. We have so great a salvation. In Jesus Christ. That list in your pocket, it's time to burn it. Your confidence does not rest in you attempting to climb out of that hole on your own. Ten million years from now, in your own righteousness, you could not have the merit to stand faultless at that judgment day. That's a long time, and that's a lot of work. And you still would fall short. You need a savior. And without that savior, you have hell. On the judgment day, what is your plea? You guys heard of a fire drill? Let's run a fire drill. This isn't the real judgment day. But I want us to run a fire drill. The alarm is going off. The trumpet blast has sounded. The end has come. You have to have an answer for your soul. There's an ark with a door open. The rains have been promised. What is your plea? I looked at the ark. I sang songs to the ark. I watched Noah build the ark. I know all the trivial facts about the ark. What's your plea? I'm in the ark. When that door closes, no more need be said. You're in the ark. And when the rains come, the rains of judgment come, you're inside. You have to be in Jesus, not in your own work. You have to be in Jesus, not in Adam attempting to live like Jesus. You have to be in Jesus. It's that simple. The gospel actually is almost uncomfortably simple. Yet it is extremely profound and complicated after you get into Christ. But you know what it comes down to? The very simple fact that you must be in Jesus Christ. So we can't complicate that. 
My children can understand that. As I always say, there's a law of gravity that prohibits you from flying. You get into that plane, that plane does the work. Your job is to get into the plane. Wherever that plane goes and needs, needs to take you, it will get you there. You need to get to the Father. Then get in Jesus. You just have to rest and remain and abide in Jesus. He gets you to the Father. You don't need to work up a whole bunch of things. However, along the way, guess what? He gets in you and begins to take your body and change it. Change the way you think. Change the way you feel. Change what you look at. Change how you use these hands and these feet. You begin to be different. But you still can't rely on that difference that is taking place in you. That real righteousness that is forming. That godliness, that Christ-likeness that is shaping within you is still not your merit. It's always and only that you are in Christ Jesus. So let's run a fire drill. It's judgment day. Trumpet is sounded. The fire drill is going. I don't know what, I forgot what fire drills sound like. I, I used to have them because I went through the public school system. And I always used to think, what a joke. I never had a real fire in my life. So it always seemed like a joke. We'll try and be serious in this one. In other words, I want us to feel the full weight of it. Remember uh, William Booth hanging his disciples over hell for 24 hours? He couldn't do it, but boy, would it be nice. And you know how healthy it would be for us to have a practice run at the judgment day? One of us needs to have one of those dreams, you know, where it's judgment day and we're standing there. You need to know this at the depths of your being. Do you know the seriousness of this? So if there was a way that we could somehow have the veil pulled back, fast forward into the future, and be able to live this, and then be able to whew, pull back to the present, how would it change us? Hmm. I bet it would have an impact. Please, Lord Jesus, may that impact strike us now. Paulette, the social activist, what's her plea on Judgment Day? Is it going to stand this society esteems Paulette, but does God esteem her work? Does God stand back in awe and wonder, impressed with her self-righteousness? That's what it is. It's self-righteousness. That's not what a humanitarian, certifiably green, peak ribbon-wearing PETA intern would call it. It's good works. It's human goodness. It's the demonstration that I can save myself without the aid of that cross. It won't stand. We all know it. In Revelation 3, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. Look at, I'm a humanitarian, certifiably green, pink ribbon wearing, Peter intern. I'm wealthy. I have everything I could need. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We don't see the truth. Because we don't see the righteousness of God. That won't stand. Rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing versus wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. When you have something in your pocket, you know what you're thinking? That you're rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing. The posture of the Christian soul is, I'm wretched, miserable, poor, poor blind, and naked. And I have nothing to offer outside of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he has done it and he has invited me in through the door and I accepted it. <laughs> that's, that's our plea. And then he takes these wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked folk like us and clothes us. 
in his royal garments, takes the ring off of his finger and sticks it on ours, kills the fatted calf and makes a feast for us, and then takes our humble little stable full of bleeding sheep and mooing cows, and the filth of dung comes in and is born afresh, cleanses us, and makes us a palace fit for a king. Yet all we were was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the reason he came in was because we recognized it. It's when you think you're rich, wealthy, and in need of nothing. It's when you think that you're healthy, that you can't be healed by the physician. We must know our sickness. We must know our disease. We must know our poverty. And that's what the Ten Commandments helps us do. It helps us know our desperation. I don't care if you grew up in a good conservative Christian home and you've never done this, 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 or this. You need Jesus. And you need Jesus like the most lost person on planet Earth. We all stand naked, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked before the judgment day. Ronald, the card-carrying Republican. Some of you don't fully appreciate my chosen name. The Limbaugh-loving, pro-life voting, Rick Perry-loving, caucus-following, never-miss-the-vote Reaganite. That is not your plea. We all know it. However, I tell you what, there is a lot of Christians that think that the fact that they vote on Super Tuesday for pro-life is their merit. I mean, God will certainly esteem that. By the way, I would highly encourage such a vote. But that isn't what saves you. That isn't what saves this world. Jesus saves this world. The only salvation for society in this world around us is Jesus Christ. We can represent that in how we vote, but Jesus is the answer, not our republicanism. Some people in Christianity are so sick and tired of people leaning on the republicanism that they become liberals just to make a statement. Not the best solution either, by the way. That's not going to work in the end either. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? The answer, no one. Minnie, the plainly accoutred minimalist. The pacifistic, head-covered, long-dressed, simple-fabriced, horse-drawn, carriage-riding Anabaptist. Is that going to get you in? We all know the answer. It's pretty obvious. If we're leaning on any of these things, if our confidence rests in anything like this, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. All of us. Even those of us that have dressed a certain way. Even those of us that have spoken a certain way and never allowed those profane words. We've never had a cigarette dangle from our lip. Is that your plea? Is that your plea that you haven't cussed and haven't drunk alcohol? That isn't your plea. Your plea is Jesus Christ. Maury, the I-dotting, T-crossing moralist. We're going to have a student probably come to Ellerslie named Maury, and we'll be like... <laughs> the alcohol-abstaining, cigarette-repulsing, non-swearing, purity-keeping, below-the-kneecap, dress-wearing, always-punctual, never-texting Ellerslie phenom. Any more need to be said? The fact that you go to Ellerslie isn't your plea. The fact that you're around a church that speaks messages that are uncomfortable to people isn't your plea. You have to get in Jesus. What is man that he could be pure? And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? Oh, good question. There's nothing. 
He can't be pure. He can't be righteous on his own. Something's wrong with him. It's called the flesh, the principle of sin. The old man rules him. He's on the throne of his life. And as a result, the answer is, there is no solution outside of a Messiah. And that's why in the Old Testament, the faith that saved them was the faith of a Messiah. The faith in the one who could rescue them. Theo, the doctrinally sound theologian, the biblically groomed, eschatologically astute, soteriologically refined, hermeneutically polished doctrinarian. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I know what I'm supposed to do. Paul's speaking to the Jews. He says, I know the law. I know that I'm supposed to live this way. I can't find the ability within me to do it. Sound familiar? You know how many Hebrew of Hebrew types of Christians can relate with this? I deal with them all the time. They're the good little boys and girls. But there's something wrong with them. Because they esteem purity and yet they're impure. They've been surrounded by everything that would keep them pure. But touching not, tasting not, handling not does nothing to solve the riddle of the soul. Just abstaining and trying to stay away from things will not save you. You must find Jesus. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Glad that's not the final statement on the matter. By the way, the next line. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, we, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What a scripture. Did you see that? All we like sheep have gone astray. Most of us just don't take the personal indictment on that one. We love whipping that scripture out and saying, hey, you've gone astray. Did you see that verse in Isaiah 53? We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus. Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the eighth-day circumcised, pure-blooded, certifiably Hebrew, church-persecuting, legally spotless, pharisaical Benjamin. Listen to what Paul says. Now, this is how we started, and then I, I cut off the, the final portion of this, but now I'm tacking it back on. So Philippians 3, 4 through 9, I also might have confidence in the flesh. He has a pedigree. He's correct. He's done everything that society, the society that he came from, the Hebrew of Hebrew societies, the Pharisaical sect that they would approve. He has the self-righteousness. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What does Paul say about it? But what things were gained to me? You know that list in his pocket? But what things were gained to me? I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's the uh, New King James word for dung. <clears throat> I had to throw that in. Don't ask me why. I changed this to the New Kings so I didn't have to put dung in there and then I said it anyways. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. Did you see that line? That I may gain Christ and be found, where? In Him. Not having...
having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. All of these things, Paul looked better on paper than any of us in here. If he had a resume, he's going to stick it in God's lap and say, you consider hiring me? Paul had the resume. Far better one than we did, and he counted it all dumb. Rubbish. Loss! That he would not have a righteousness of his own. Burn this crazy piece of paper! This is all about Jesus. My plea is Jesus. My boast is Jesus. It's not in anything I can do. It's what, in what he did. It's not in anything I will do. It's in what he did. He has done it for me. That is our boast. Meet the flesh. The dirty, rotten, right-handed, self-absorbed, self-serving, self-aggrandizing, hairy, sweaty, scruffy, bearded, slobbering mob boss, otherwise known as the old man that controls your body. How's that for a description? Do you remember me talking about the flesh? Some of you have been here when I've talked about the fact that it's like, here's the human body. There's the director's quarters. It's like a glassed-in office, and there's the director's chair. And who's sitting in it? Self. You think self would be able to control this operation. He's in the director's chair. We have all these machines out here that are supposed to be producing good fruit. Instead, disgusting stuff is coming out of your life. Why? It's because as long as you sit in that chair, there's one character known as the old man, the flash that is running the operation. You are roped in. You can't even get out of that chair. No matter how much you try, you can't save yourself. You're doomed. Because you have to produce good fruit out of this life. Otherwise, it's over. Curtains. What do you do? Jesus has done the work. To rid your body of the principle of sin, the power of the flesh. You're sitting there. There's like a little red button over here. And God says, push the red button. Call for help. You just have enough reach to go... Suddenly Jesus comes in, strides in as the hero, grabs the flesh, thrusts him out of the house and says, this place belongs to me. Then he has some cleanup to do. Takes his water hose, starts getting all the junk out of there, unties the rope from around you and says, I need you down. Can you get off that chair? He won't force you, but he'll say, if you don't get down, that flesh will come right back in. Get down. And we must give up our position, our throne, and allow him to take his rightful place. The perceived rights of men. The first right, there's three rights. The first right, yamin in the Hebrew, dexios in the Greek, it means the right side of the body, the right, the right hand, the side of the body opposite the left. Okay, that's this. This is my right hand. It's my left. So the first right is described in the Bible is the right side of the body. To the Hebrew, it denotes strength, power, salvation, control, will, lordship, kingship, holiness, cleanliness, correctness, correction, social propriety, honor, and wisdom. It's sort of strange that a hand would represent all these things. This is the fighting hand, even though the Benjamites, you know, used their left. The concept in the Bible is the right hand. The king, for instance, holds his scepter in the right hand. It's a symbol of authority, control, power. Where did Jesus sit? At the right hand of the Father, which means he has been given all authority, power, and dominion. Okay? So this is very important to the Hebrew. It's the right side of the body. We don't think right and left very much, but in the kingdom of heaven, they do. So as a result, it's important to us. The second right, mishpat in the Hebrew, ecstasy in the, in the Greek, that which is lawful, inherited property or reasonable, natural allowance of liberty and control. This is the rights that we have. For instance, I own a house. And I have a right to that house, and you don't have a right to break in. 
For instance, there's a policeman out there going, that's right. Uh, see, we have rights. You know, there's, this, there's unspoken rights, too. In other words, you're standing in line waiting for something. Someone can't just barge in front of you. It's a violation of your rights, even though it's not written down anywhere. Okay? We have a perceived sense of rights. That's the second one. Third, oh, uh, I have a definition. A right to control, decide his course, engineer his outcome, design and build his fortune and fame, create and stimulate his happiness and pleasure, keep or relinquish his assets. We have a right, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Isn't that interesting? That's what it says in the Declaration of Independence. It's not what the Bible is declaring. However, it does infer it, that we have a right to control our future, Right? Now, I'm baiting you for something because all of the good, you know, uh, historian Americans in here are like, that's right. We need to protect the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just like the right side of the body, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's keep going. Third right, yashar, mishor, orthos. The correct, appropriate, upright, just, pure, noble, and honorable answer to any given question or situation. Am I wearing a green shirt? The answer would be no. Am I wearing a black shirt? The answer would be no. If I said, am I wearing a light blue, I don't know exactly what color that is, shirt. And you'd say, yes, that would be the right answer. Okay? So that's the third right. Political, social, and religious correctness. The way that seems right unto man. Okay, now there's three things that we've quickly unpacked. Now remember what our word is that we're working off of? Righteousness. You see anything similar about right and the word Righteousness. The word right is like packaged in there. Isn't that interesting? What's it doing there? Okay, there's three rights. Right side of the body. The right to the pursuit of your own future livelihood. Things like this. I have a right to my property and you can't just infringe upon it. And then we also have the correct answer. Right. That's a right answer. Okay? Righteousness. Sedek and Dikosune, the correct, proper, just, pure, noble, honorable pattern for living. The most virtuous course, the most perfect means, the most correct methodology and behavior. The way that is right unto God, Jesus. So there's a way that seems right unto man, and that's political correctness, social correctness, religious correctness, church correctness, Christian correctness, whatever you'd want to call it. There's a way that seems right unto us. And guess what? There's also a way that seems right unto God. I, I, don't, I took out the word seems, because it doesn't just seem right to God. He knows it. There is a way that is right unto God. What's that way's name? Jesus. The way that is right unto God is a person. Isn't that interesting? You want to live rightly? Get in Jesus. Get in Jesus. He is righteousness. He is the way we ought to be and aren't. Get into Jesus. Let him solve that great dilemma in your life. Relinquishing of the three rights. The first right. Remember the first right? That's the hand of authority, strength, valor, war, control. The self-strength, self-reliance, and self-will must be laid down. You want Christianity? You want true righteousness? Take your strength. Take your power. Take your authority, your right hand, and allow it to go paralyzed. You're no longer saving yourself with your own strength. You're no longer saving yourself with your own wisdom. You're no longer saving yourself with your own right-handedness. Your own righteousness. Self-right-handedness. That's what we suffer from. It's a great malady. We take our own strength, our own ability, our own wit, wisdom, power, grit, determination, and we try and rescue ourselves. Humanitarianism, right-handedness. That's what it is. But so is most of the Christianity that many of us 
deal out in our life. Well, God, I'm doing all these great things for you. You, you live the way you live. Out of obedience to God because you love him. He has rescued you. Now you live as a bondservant saying, just lead me. You don't do it to try and earn favor. You do it because of love. It's an act of worship. The second right, the right to control your own life, decide your own course, engineer your own outcome, design and build your fortune and fame, create and stimulate your happiness and pleasure, and keep or relinquish your assets must be laid down. Basically, what I would say in a nutshell is the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's a good right. Give it up. Give it up for Jesus. It's not the government that should ask you to give it up. It's Jesus that does. Because you have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to be imprisoned, if necessary, for Jesus. And pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of Jesus, pursuit of his glory. It's not about your own comfort, your own uh, pleasures. This is about him, his glory. That's what it's about. If you want righteousness, you lay down the second right. Third right, your political, social, and religious correctness needs to be relinquished. All that you perceive is right. Oh, there's a way that seems right unto man. Are you willing to give that up? What you'll find is you'll end up giving messages like I give. You give that one thing that everyone's like, he's not allowed to say that. I know. I know I'm not allowed to because in the correctitude of our culture, it says, no, that's inappropriate. Are you willing to give that sense up? Are you willing to say what needs to be said as opposed to what society says you're not allowed to say? You know that truth has fallen in the streets? Why? Because of political correctness. And we are so afraid of getting on the wrong side of that fence. Saul is rejected as king. David is anointed. Guess what? Saul didn't yield his throne. And as a result, David was on the run, hiding in caves. Who's going to stand with Saul, who's politically correct? And who's going to stand with David, who's politically incorrect? The entire military force of Israel was on Saul's side. That's what we deal with when we side with David. The one in hiding, the one in the cave. However, who's the rightful king? David. And those that stood with him in the cave will stand with him in his kingdom. It's time to go looking for our David in the cave. Yes, it's not the comfortable way of living. But that cave, you know what it's also called? The cave of Adullam is known as the rock. The rock. That's Jesus. And where do you find that salvation? In the rock. You go to David in hiding, in the cave. Stripped bare of the right, your own righteousness, this is as you ought to be. That's what righteousness is. It's as one ought to be. So we need to be stripped bare of these three rights. Our righteousness for us to become as we ought to be. And we must be clothed in his righteousness or saved by his right arm. This is as you ought to be. We must... Be stripped of our righteousness, and we must be clothed in his. Get that little list out of your pocket. Get rid of it. Take on his robe. Take on his clothing. Life will begin to work. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Meet Christian. So we met all those other characters. Let's get down to the brass tacks of who Christian is. The Christ enclothed. I think I made up that word. I think it was underlined in red. Uh, but I thought it was a good word. Enclothed. Isn't that a good word? Some of you are like, no. 
The Christ in clothed, because this is a robe, we're in clothed. Blood encompassed, grace enfolded, Jesus rescued, justified, forgiven, washed, cleansed, and purged believer. That's a Christian. It's not just the moralist do-gooder. It's not the Republican. It's not the head-covered Sabbatarian. It's not the vegan-eating, rice-milk-drinking. Okay? Those aren't our merits. Our merit is that we are Christ in clothed. I know it's a new word, but it'll grow on you. Blood encompassed. Grace enfolded. Jesus rescued, justified, forgiven, washed, cleansed, and purged. We believe it. That's what marks us. That's what we are. It's very simple. Now, when we are that, it changes our life. We are reformed in our thinking. Our mind is renewed. Our behavior is changed. But let's not skip what changes us and try and make an external change when our heart is still filthy. What's the great statement from Jesus? First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean also. The right ear, thumb, and big toe. The right side of the body in the Hebrew culture is very significant. And when the priests were being consecrated, the high priest would slit open a a ram, dip his finger in the blood of the ram, and take that priest, which, by the way, we're a kingdom of priests, and he would smear the right ear of the priest, smear the right thumb of the priest, and take the right big toe of the priest. Now, remember what this side of the body is. It's a side of control, authority, power, dominion. And God's saying, no longer your control. No longer your power, no longer your strength that saves you, no longer your dominion. This body belongs to me. This body that we have belongs to him. It actually says in scripture it was bought with a price. It was purchased by the blood of Jesus. He owns you. He redeemed you. This body is his. And so what he does to signify that is he smears your right ear with blood, your right thumb with blood, and your right big toe with blood. And you're like, this is strange. I didn't come up with it. Why would the priest do that? It's because this is where you hear. Obedience flows through hearing. If you don't know something, you can't say yes to it. And most of us have a big chunk of flesh over our ears. They're uncircumcised ears. They've never been given to God. So as a result, we do not have an ear for our master. In Revelation, it says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Well, guess what? We don't have ears. We're all like, well, I have an ear. No, you don't. Not a spiritual one. Your ear is covered with a big blubber ring. You cannot hear what the Spirit of God is wanting you to hear. You must give your right, your righteousness over to God. And you must say, I have your ear now. I have an ear for my master. You ever heard of a bondservant? Their ear is pierced. That's to say, I have an ear for my master. Whatever my master asks of me, I say yes. Even before he asks, I say yes. It's the predecided yes. Right thumb. Control. Imagine life without a thumb. Sort of difficult. But with a thumb, you have control. You have a grip. And God says, um, I need that grip. I need the control of your life. That thumb must be mine. What? That's my thumb. That's my control. Uh Uh-huh. I need it. For you to become as you ought to be, I need your ear and I need your thumb. And while we're at it, I need that big toe. 
Most of us are more eager to give away our big toe anyways, especially Mike Hahn. Uh, but this big toe is symbolic of something. It's what leads us in this life. It's where we go in life. And that becomes a little more challenging. Are you saying that my life needs to now be directed by God? I have plans, God. I have visions. I have dreams of what I want to do. Do you want life or not? Because life has to come on his terms, not yours. And that big toe needs to be smeared with blood. Which means wherever you go in this life, you recognize that you're a bearer of the Ark of Covenant. You're a bearer of the very presence of the Almighty God. You're not on your own errands. You're on His. You bear the name of God as a crown on your head. And when people see you, they're supposed to say, so that's what a Christian looks like. So that's what it looks like. Your righteousness, your right side, needs to be consecrated and given over to the king. And then his righteousness becomes your right. You are clothed in him. And your ear suddenly begins to behave as it ought to behave. And you read the word of God and you say, yes, Lord. And suddenly the controls in your life, no longer you clinging to your way of doing things, your hope, your future, your career, your money. It's like, God, it belongs to you. Your thumb is consecrated the way it ought to be. And now your toe says, you know, I'm willing to go wherever my God leads me. Gulp. These are intense things. That's just Christianity. Christianity isn't complicated in its most basic sense. Get into Christ. The ark door is open, get in. The plane door is open, get in. That is the only salvation from the judgment to come. It's Christ. You'll not find it anywhere else. And it's funny, but we as Christians have that as our doctrine. And yet we oftentimes live very differently than that. And we put hope and confidence in something outside of Jesus. Let's just get back to the simplicity of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is sufficient. It is efficacious to meet the needs and the demands of our souls. Holy Father, I pray that we would not trip over little awkward moments in this message that may pierce us or strike us funny. Lord, but I pray that you would save us from finding our reliance at any level in anything we do. But we would only find our reliance in what you did, who you are, and who you will be in our life. Lord, you are faithful and true. And you are able to keep our feet from falling. But all the promises of God are yes and amen to those who are in Christ. And Lord Jesus, we must be in you. We must find our life, our hope, our salvation in you. And not anywhere else. Please, Lord Jesus, for those of us that have found righteousness and found confidence in anything outside of you, I pray that we would count it all loss for the glory of our King Jesus. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.